0: I'm Tim Richard
1: and I'm Michelle Bowen
0: and you're listening to the More Train Less Pain podcast.
1: More train
0: less pain. Welcome to More Train Less Pain the listener request episode Michelle how the hell are you?
1: Super, it's 75 degrees outside, sunny, and I'm in my apartment.
0: Does that just get you in a good mindset to answer some questions? Yes. Okay, here we go. (laughs) So we have solicited questions from our fine fans predominantly through Instagram Mm -hmm. via some story stickers, and we have a few ones that we think are gonna make for some really interesting discussion. Hopefully yeah, hopefully. We'll, we'll try. We'll try our best anyway. So, uh, anything to say before we kick this off, Michelle?
1: No, I so this episode is going to be like kind of like a q and a. We'll ramble on a little bit about some questions, hit some rapid fires at the end. And then I think we're planning on kind of diving deep into each season one episode next time and going through. I have things that we've taken away from it and just overall our experience with season one, what we've learned. Um, I know I've learned a great deal and I've incorporated a lot of the things that our special guests have added to our lives. Um, So I'm very excited about that. So I think we have two really good episodes coming up.
0: Yeah. And stay tuned if you're listening right now. I I think we're going to make that final season one wrap up episode a tequila episode.
1: I th- and we've got to th- schedule it a little later in the day.
0: I know? know, I had that <laughs> thought too.
1: <laughs> like, we can't be doing that at time, which it is for me.
0: But we got to respect your bedtime as well.
1: <laughs> exactly. So exactly. we're kind of
0: threading the needle of time change and Michelle going to bed at 7.45 p.m.
1: Yeah, we don't have a lot of options.
0: <laughs> All right, you want to kick this thing off?
1: Yeah, let's do it. Let's ask the first question.
0: Okay. Uh, on Instagram, AT Kingan asks... What effect does K-tape have that is backed by evidence and what isn't backed, but still believed? So I went to Google Scholar to attempt to answer the first portion of this question. I found two studies from the past uh, five years, and they were both a little bit contradictory. The first is titled "Facilitatory and Inhibitory Effects of Kinesio Tape Fact or Fad? Question mark pretty dope title for a research paper. Mm-hmm. Um, this is by CCHI, C IPH, WN, probably an Asian study um, or study from an Asian country. It's from February 2016. Essentially, the gist of that study was that they looked at muscle activation in isolated muscle strength tests with various types of kinesiotaping techniques, and they found no difference in actual power output uh, no matter what the technique was. So their conclusion was that there is no facilitatory or inhibitory direct effect on muscular contractile strength. The other one that I found kind of looking at a different thing is called the effect of kinesio tape on force sense in people with functional ankle instability. And that's from July, 2014. And that's from the clinical journal of sports medicine. What they did find was, so they were looking at a single leg balance test and they looked at people with various kinesio tape techniques applied to the ankle versus not. All of these people had some version of functional ankle instability, however they defined that. And what they did find was the people that had K-taped ankles did perform better on that task. They also ran an interesting little follow-up study and found that um, those effects persisted for a few weeks, even after the removal of tape. So what does this tell us? It tells us that probably what kinesio tape is doing isn't increasing or decreasing the strength of muscles. Probably what it is doing is increasing the sensation of one particular area and getting your brain to attend to it more. And that could be really, really useful when applied in the right context. Um, Personally, or not personally, I should say professionally in my clinical practice, I don't use K-tape all that much unless I'm trying to teach a person a specific position that's easily taped that will be helpful. For the task that they're trying to perform. So, I know I've used some like scapular depression K tape techniques, some scapular protraction K tape techniques, um, not too much at the foot and ankle because it just seems like the tape comes off really, really easy. In regards to the second part of this question, what is believed? I think it's a lot of the stuff that we already discussed. The K tape evangelists will tell you that it, you know, adaptively kind of selectively model recruitment, either inhibitory or facilitatory, with, with key muscles. Um, again, I don't think that's directly the case. I do think that can happen, but that happens via position sense. So it's kind of like an indirect effect of that. And that is just my opinion. And I've not taken, um, I'm not taking specific K-tape continuum education or rock tape continuum education. It
1: looks cool.
0: it's if you get the cool colors it looks cool it looks
1: like you're a seasoned vet and ready to go
0: yeah or it's just or it just makes you look like a tool like one go
1: either way actually
0: one strip of that shit is is kind of cool like one strip of bright blue or like you know tiger pattern. But you see these people that are just like held together with k-tape, or they think they're and this is I mean, it's something that you and I kind of talk about, like, we're in favor of interventions that promote an anti fragile or unfragile mindset. So it's this notion that, you know, if, if you're the type of athlete or the type of practitioner that thinks that folks have to be taped up to get the job done, I would argue that's maladaptive and probably more harmful than helpful. We'll be back to the show after this quick message. Whether you're a trainer, coach, or therapist, our jobs are hard, and oftentimes, the last thing we want to do after a long day or week is sit down and write ourselves a quality fitness program. During my first few years out from physical therapy school, I found myself falling into this trap and repeating the same ineffective workouts that yielded the same familiar aches and pains along with the same old strength numbers or running paces. Towards the end, I found that it started to sap some of the enthusiasm I was bringing to the table when working with clients, and I couldn't have that. One of the best personal and professional decisions I've made in recent memory was hiring a coach to design my own strength conditioning programs. Removing the pressure of constructing my own workouts was massive and enabled me to experience different facets of training while continuing to progress towards my unique fitness and performance goals. That's why I'm so passionate about my remote personal training service. Every four weeks, you get a new program fully customized around your time demands, injury history, performance goals, and equipment availability. Each exercise in the PDF is linked to a YouTube video of yours truly, so you always know what you're supposed to be doing. We'll chat on Zoom for 30 minutes during the first and last weeks of the program, and I'm available seven days a week for questions or video feedback via email. Take a major step towards your mental and physical health today. Let me program for you so that you can rediscover why you love training in the first place. Find out more by going to timrichart.com slash services. And now, back to the show.
1: Hmm. Boom. On to the
0: next one. By the way, thank you so much for your question, A.T. Kingan. Moving on. And like Michelle said, what we're going to do is larger questions that take a little bit longer to answer. And then we will do a lightning round at the end here. Moving on. How yeah, I'll imp- let you
1: know what questions that I went on the internet and looked up research studies for. But
0: that, that was the only one. I wanted to start with that because I was very proud of myself for remembering how to use Google Scholar.
1: I'm very <laughs> proud of you as well.
0: So much love on this fine Friday. Okay. <laughs> How important is it to make rehab fun and how do you go about doing that? Michelle, I'll I'll say my piece first, but I am actually curious to hear what you have to say on this because I feel like you do a good job of making training engaging.
1: You're so sweet, thank you.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, In my opinion, the biggest barrier to most clinical outcomes and most progress is compliance. So making things fun can help with compliance, making sure that your people actually do their things. However, we have to be really careful not to make the rehab experience as much of a thing than the fitness experience. I think as clinicians, steps should be taken to make rehab not miserable, um, to gamify it when we can, to track it when we can. This is where key performance indicators kind of come in. But in and of itself, the goal of rehab isn't to cultivate a, a fun experience. Um, it's usually to accomplish an incredibly specific objective: improving range of motion, managing an active injury, or coming back post-operatively or you know, post-traumatic event. So I realize that a lot of that is not a very specific way to answer this question. I, I think it's important to make rehab as fun as possible, but not to make fun the primary outcome of rehab.
1: Yes, that that's, that's a good one. Um, yeah, because I feel like rehab, someone's coming to a physical therapy, it's almost like they have an expectation that it's going to be more of a quote-unquote like serious environment, like they're there to do A job. They're there because they have an issue and they want it solved. Um, Maybe the training environment for some people, there's a lighter expectation that it's not going to be some, you know, military environment kind of disciplined in, in, in a lot of ways, especially if someone's seeking out like a personal trainer in a general pop setting. I think. One of some of the most successful trainers are just good people and keep people engaged and keep a fun atmosphere while fitness is being accomplished. Um, so I think it's a little bit different ballgame between the two environments.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I think something that you and I talk about quite a bit is the cultivation of a fitness experience. And I think for young trainers listening, it's like learning to cultivate that fitness experience is the difference between being able to charge $50 a session and $150 a session. So it's really, really, really important. I think in rehab that matters to some extent, don't get me wrong. Like if you own your own practice, it should be enjoyable to be in, in, you know, kind of all five senses. Like you should try to make that experience very enjoyable. However... Think about something like a ninety ninety hip lift, basic PRI exercise. There's not going to be a way to make that fun. It just needs to be effective. So I think I, I think, think it's there-
1: almost like the polar opposite of how can you how can you mo- not make it a terrible experience? So I've I've been in situations where the person is just has zero personal person skills. Um, doesn't even like make eye contact with you. They're just kind of taking, taking notes as they go. Or, you know, they're out in the hallway and you can hear the things that they're saying while you're in like, kind of a private room. Oh, my gosh. And it's inappropriate or it makes you feel uncomfortable. And then they come into the room and, you know, that's an experience that people will will dread for a very long time.
0: Yeah, I, I would.
1: Basic I, skills.
0: I would. Yeah, I would completely agree. I do think there's a ton of overlap in the a lot of the things that make a fitness experience enjoyable could help make a rehab experience less terrible.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And ultimately, probably the quality of your rehab experience long term is going to be largely dictated by the outcome of that experience.
1: Yes, I would agree with that.
0: So it's like, you could be rad. You like, you could have the dopest music playing, you could have the comfiest (laughs) table, you could have a really great environment, really great conversation, really great rapport. Um, But that'll only take you so far. If it's been six visits in and someone's paying you $150 a visit and they're not any better, then you need to start about, you need to start thinking about how to make your interventions more effective.
1: Yeah, and sometimes I've had situations, well, first of all, I always win people over with my just unbelievable sense of humor. But I've had experiences. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Um, I've had experiences where people have have said to me that either you know they may not be getting results with someone, but they really enjoy them as as a person, and or maybe their personal skills create a better outcome because they are having an enjoyable experience. Um, But yet, I I think trainers. Even if, you know, you're having a bad day, you have a bad attitude, even just taking five minutes before the session, going for a walk and just regrouping and really coming into the session with an effort of creating a fun environment and asking them questions about themselves um, and really get them talking and laughing as soon as possible is always going to lead to better outcomes and better experiences.
0: Yeah, I, I also think I I think I heard Mike Robertson say this, like the first time I ever heard it, but something to the effect of take what you do very seriously, but don't take yourself
1: seriously. That's a good one.
0: Yeah. So I think, you know, and that's a little bit tongue in cheek, but I, I, I give, you know, a sideline hip shift to folks all the time and I up front, I'm like, hey, this is going to feel like the most boring shit in the world, but it's a really remedial position that's important to master. And that's layered in with all the things that you already mentioned, you know, me asking them about what actually matters to them, about Mm -hmm. their most recent trip up a mountain, about their kids, about, so, so it actually, and I, I do think that helps the practitioner as well. Like Danny, Danny Matei calls this the, like the give a fuck rule. Like you you actually got to give a fuck.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Like it
0: makes the experience for you more enjoyable if you authentically care and people pick up on that.
1: Yeah. And this kind of bleeds over into the next question as well.
0: I think to put this one to bed, uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention, so tracking range of motion, like if that's the primary outcome of 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 a stint of rehab, I think that in and of itself can make it a more motivating experience. Like I've had I've definitely had dealings with practitioners before. Okay. Like uh, Mike Camperino, Mike Camperini, Campo is a really good example of this. Where like, he has a detailed spreadsheet, Zach Couples as well, of what my ranges of motion have been. And I've known Zach like four or five years at this point, I've known Campo two or three years. So it's like, it's actually pretty motivating to see, oh, my Mm -hmm. hip internal rotation is 25 degrees and it used to be five degrees. Like that's pretty cool. So that's going to create more continued buy-in and in my mind, make the experience a little bit more enjoyable. The other thing I did want to mention is yoga. So it's like, I think if we're trying to make a rehab ish experience fun and engaging, the closest thing I can think of that isn't rehab would be something like yoga where it's like positions flowing into one another. We're breathing, we're doing it together. Mm -hmm. And I think you could probably get some of the effects of, more traditional rehab from something like that but it's just the primary outcome of yoga is not going to be a, a specific medical outcome or diagnostic outcome
1: yeah and speaking for myself with the, the the individual you just mentioned mike Camperini, um i i've gone it's more like a an experimental project you know when we first started learning about like Shaw restoration institute like people would you know, do hip ranges of motion, tests on me, and then give me some interventions, retest. And I always thought it was extremely boring, (laughs) zero fun. (laughs) Um, But then someone like an individual like Mike, I remember I was having hip pain, I think it was two years now. And he's just a local friend. So I called him up, went to the gym. And all of his exercises that he gave me looked like things I was going to do in the gym. So that was fun to me. That's more related to the things that I enjoy. Thus, I probably was more, um, I followed through with the exercises a lot more.
0: Yeah, that's that comes down to knowing your client too. Yeah. If, if exactly. a Michelle walks in through your door, you want to get her up off the ground as quickly as possible. If you can never even put her on the ground, she's going to love that. Yes. Whereas if you're working with, you know, a 65-year-old grandmother of 3, it's going to be very threatening to put them in a split stance with a trap bar.
1: Mhm. Yes, and the less likely they are to succeed at some something, the less fun, quote unquote, it's going to be for them. Yeah.
0: So I think I mean in summation, rehab can mean a lot of different things. Fun within any of those contexts can mean a lot of different things, but I we both kind of think it's possible to make rehab le- less bad, kind of fun, but it's never going to be as fun as a 100% fun oriented fitness experience.
1: So working with you is always going to be less fun than working with me. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Just kidding.
0: Okay. Move. Oh, and that, that was by Bellhouse Fitness. So Bellhouse Fitness, thank okay. you for your question. Next big question. Why make general fitness and wellness be so complicated, confusing, and elusive? By A C Anyak or A Canyak. Apologies for one of those pronunciations. Michelle, you want to kick this off? This
1: is my favorite question that we received. And my favorite question in relation to it actually made me stop and think of like, oh yeah, like, do I make things like too complicated? um, why do we do that? And you can go in many different directions with this. Um, I won't steal what you have written down as your answer, but it depends on kind of like what we're talking about. So a lot of people may be on social media or quote unquote, like assumed authorities, people who have like a lot of uh, followers, um, They almost in some ways have to make things complicated to keep people's attention um, and produce content over and over again in some ways. Um, But if you do look at like the big rocks and I'll talk about strength and conditioning, like well, Mike Boyle, Eric Cressy, um, Dan John, maybe I'll add into this, probably a ton of other people. They make things as simple as possible. If you look at their program structure, it's very simple progressions, very simple themes for each day, very easy to follow. And that's why a lot of young coaches succeed when they follow these types of individuals as they are coming up in the field, because it is so simple. And then where does it go kind of sideways where? people get lost in paralysis by analysis or just so overwhelmed with all the free information that they almost make things so complicated that they're not doing what they're setting out to do. And I think a lot of that has to do with the social media error or all this free information. And a lot of uh, the schools of thoughts that are out there and being exposed to that, um, But yeah, this is a super interesting question.
0: Sometimes when I'm trying to sound smart and think that I'm going to say paralysis by analysis, I say analysis by paralysis.
1: It's okay. It happens to the best of us. (laughs) So I
0: was really impressed when you pulled it off.
1: Thank you. Appreciate that.
0: (laughs) I, yeah, I think it's an interesting journey that you outline, right? From like Dan John is the epitome of this or in track and field. There's a gentleman named Tony Holler who has a system called Feed the Cats, where like it is incredibly minimalistic. Like I think he's a self-described essentialist. And I think Dan John would probably describe himself that same way, only do what is essential. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned, I think that gets people into thinking these ways. It gets people into the field and then eventually something goes awry. They're not getting the outcomes they want or they get injured or something like that. And then they feel like they don't have all the information they need to manage that new situation. And I think we have to be careful because this is probably where increased complexity is appropriate. I, I referenced this quote by, I think Albert Einstein, but make things as simple as possible and not simpler. And I think that that's a really good framework. I think the starting framework should be to make things as simple as possible, but then a lot of people following that mindset, myself included in the past year or two, um, there's a tendency to potentially oversimplify. And that, that means that you lose out on nuance. So I, I don't think that all complexity is bad. I think that needless complexity is bad. But I, I do think that there is a there's definitely a place for someone that's gone really, really far down the PRI rabbit hole and understands that system to an incredible amount of depth because they're probably going to be able to help a subset of people that I know I will never be able to
1: help. Yeah. Well working with like general population clients. I feel like you can succeed in a lot of ways with low hanging fruit and making things as simple as possible. And it's that 1% of the people that you work with that are going to need more complex things or you are consistently failing at something. Ooh. But that's that's a good referral system. That's knowing people who are are smarter than you and do better at that specific thing than you and reaching out to them. And I'm not saying don't learn new things, don't learn new systems, don't incorporate new things. But it's like, why are you making things harder for yourself in some ways? Like instead of you trying to figure out this extremely complex individual or a problem or injury, like call Tim, (laughs) you know what I mean? And collaborate with him.
0: Yeah, I mean, I. what comes to mind as we discuss this is, I think I can honestly say that I harmed or did disservice to more people in the first two years of my career attempting to make things more complicated than I have in the last two years of my career attempting to make things more simple. Mm-hmm. So phrased another way, I believe I help more people a larger percentage of the time intending to make things as simple as possible and not as complicated as possible.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a good quality that people have because we're passionate about this field, we're extremely curious about these topics that we wanna learn more and more, but not to beat on a dead horse or keep mentioning my strategy course over and over again, but literally that's what I teach in these courses. And I struggle to sell these things Because it's not interesting to people. People just want more information instead of consolidating what they already know into something that is going to be simple and is going to provide structure structure and processes. You know, it's going to relate. There's a question here of like, uh, not to jump the, the gun, but how does someone mentor interns as a young coach? And it literally goes back to that. Instead of like, Drilling them—it's the same thing as, you know, a middle school kid or an elementary school kid. Instead of drilling them with just more information, you need to provide people skills on how to use information, so they can actually, when they do take in new information, they have a place to go with it. They don't get overwhelmed with all this complex uh, complexity that they can make it simple and make it work for the people that they are, are trying to serve.
0: Yeah. With the people that I've worked with online in the past year, which is usually professional mentorship or like remote training clients, movement clients, they all tend to be therapists or trainers. And I feel like it's one of two things, either they've never heard of PRI or Bill Hartman stuff and all of this respiration and position-based Um, treatment is completely novel to them, in which case I do the simple thing and they get better most of the time, or they've been steeped in it too much. They're trying to overcomplicate things. And my value is again, to make things as simple as possible and to peel things back to what actually makes sense. In both of those circumstances, it's the same thing. It's like you mentioned the low hanging fruit. It's the 80% of outcome I'm achieving with 20% of complexity.
1: And it I don't it's I'm not saying that this is a problem, but when you mention like PRI and Bill Hartman's intensive model, it frustrates me a lot because I get a lot of the wrong questions, in my opinion, from people who are doing what they're doing, going about their lives, and then they see all these people on Instagram, use all this terminology, and then they are like, ooh, that sounds really interesting. I should be doing that. That's what I'm missing in my life. That's why Susie can't split squat a full depth. Like, (sighs) I need to know this, and I need to remove everything that I've been doing for the past five years and learn Bill Hartman's stuff (laughs) cough, cough, indirectly from someone who's trying to basically sell his product in a different way instead of actually going to the source itself and learning from the original material. But anyway, side note, they're trying to make things too complicated. Like, why do you need to throw out everything that you've done to learn a system that you think is going to cure all. It's going to cure your cancer when it's it's not. Sometimes I question like the usage of. Just hopping on to the new next thing. Um, Yeah,
0: I, I was talking with our good friend, Zach, Zach Couples, and he was telling me about a colleague who got really frustrated with applying PRI principles because she wasn't getting the results that she wanted with her clients. And then, and now she's latched on to like Gary Ward stuff, like the anatomy and motion stuff. And she's like, now, okay, so now this is the answer. And Zach yes. was like, nothing's the answer. Mm-hmm. Like, ev- everything is just additional perspective. There's not going to be any system that gets you a hundred, that gets a hundred percent of your people better. Yeah, it's just incremental a- improvement.
1: Yes. And I get a lot of people asking me, for example, I have that, that database that I have and can you categorize things into expansive or compressive activities and again it's it's trying to start, turn something that you don't understand into something that's actually too simplistic just so you can use it easily it's it's a very complex thing but I don't, I don't think that's the solution to, to your problems. Um,
0: Oh oh God. And it's, there's so much wrapped in that, right? It's like, you could make a 90, 90 90, 90 hip lift compressive. If you just like, like really like, you know what I mean? That's. You hit me on
1: a bad day because I'm still kind of like irritated about it, (laughs) but it's like, yeah. Like where, like, what exactly are you talking about? And like, if I do quote unquote, an expansive activity, which no such thing. And I just hold my breath or brace. Like it's all about coaching execution and your ability to coach things more than the decision for specific exercise or movement pattern. Um, Anyways, but going back to the original question, a lot of it- We're getting
0: soapbox Michelle today, this is good.
1: I don't even remember what I was originally talking about before, but going back to the question, um, you know, a lot of it too is making things very complicated because you have to sell things, right? So there's ego of practitioners, there's um, you sell products and courses, um, a lot of things like that. So you can't be ignorant to those things as well. But I think we do as an individual or personal trainer, you have to make things simple um, you can't rely on other people to do it for you. Um, in terms of, I, I try to take learning slow. I think I did go through a phase in my life where I tried to stuff as much things as possible and my brain went to every course imaginable. And that was good for that certain period of time in my life. But now, especially with uh, leading a different lifestyle or having personal life responsibilities, which is a little different than, you know, younger me. Um, I try to just learn a little piece of information at a time. And that way I have time to consolidate it into what I already do and not to dive down these rabbit holes because I've, I've learned now that that's just not the way to go. I just have to make things as simple as possible for my clients.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's almost the professional version of like the program hoppers from back in the day, the people that would buy like, follow like a T nation thing for four weeks. And then they would go do a power, like a powerlifting, like a Mike Bell thing for four weeks. Then two years later, they're still not anywhere closer to what they may or may not define their goal to be. And it's because they just lacked the ability to be consistent with a thing for months and months and months and just to be steeped in that thing. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of power to that. There's a lot of value to that.
1: Yeah. And again, I think I really love this question because it really does make you think. Um, And I think it may, I mean, I don't want to speak for this individual, but it may come from a place of frustration, which I appreciate um, because I think that leads you in a good direction when you express frustration and then you have to kind of wean your way out of it a little bit. Um, But I do appreciate this question.
0: Yeah, we very much appreciate you, A. Kanyak or AC Anyak. I think, that, I think that puts that one to bed. Any closing thoughts?
1: Mm, no.
0: Okay. The next two, we will combine into one master question and it actually builds really, really well off what we just talked about. So these two questions are, Jay Cormier asks, do you find relevance in using the SF- SFMA, Selective Functional Movement Assessment? or do you look at movement only through the PRI Hartman model? I see Michelle cringing. (laughs) Brett asks, how do you combine PRI concepts in your treatment with interventions focused on improving kinetics that may contradict PRI philosophy? I will, uh, just to keep the steam from pouring out of Michelle's ears and her head exploding, I will take first stab at this. So, actually starting with Brett's question the how do you combine concepts that might be contradictory i do not believe that information is inherently contradictory as long as you understand the nuance to which that information or which that information contains so i think that people tend to do this thing so like take mckenzie and pri for example you watch 10 minutes of mckenzie stuff on youtube you say this is an extension based approach for back pain you then go and watch 10 minutes of PRI stuff on YouTube you're like they seem to be flexing a lot so inherently you know you'd say all right well these things have to be completely contradictory when like Michelle said if you took the time to slow cook that learning process you might generate an awareness of okay Mackenzie's using extension to do something with the disks and in a certain context, that actually might be really, really useful if someone has ridiculous low back pain or ridiculous cervical spine pain. PRI might be useful for a different context, potentially like the overextended athlete that has never really thought about how they breathe. So those things aren't inherently contradictory, even though if you only go surface deep with either of them, they might seem to be contradictory. So how do I, mesh different systems that seem to be telling me to do different things, I would say you, A, you fall back on what you already have been doing that is working. And then B, you try to dig deeper for the nuance in each of those systems so that if there are useful parts to those systems, they can happily coexist within your model in a useful way and not contradictory way. Michelle, did that make sense?
1: That was actually great. And I don't want to say actually, because I expect that out of you, as always, very articulate. Yes, I think if you go like a deeper level underneath a lot of these systems, they have a lot of commonalities.
0: I would agree. I also think that, again, people, this is going to, I'm going to get on my like old man rant here. The rise of social media tends to eliminate nuance from the discussion of any of these concepts or treatment methodologies, right? So PRI becomes breathing inflection. McKenzie becomes extension. Hartman stuff becomes expansion compression. Mm. And it's like all of these systems are so much more than just a couple words. Right? Like, I mean, I've, again, I've, I've heard the source himself, Bill Hartman speaks to the fact that we need compression to move through space. We need compression for performance. So it's like, what, what him and his people are trying to do is not to eliminate all compression. It's to, it's to just explain that like, Hey, some things happen during compression. Something, some things during expansion. Uh, we find this to be a useful way to describe movement. And, we're, you know, we can do things with that line of thinking the same with PRI, the same with McKenzie, to some extent, the same with FMS and SFMA.
1: Yes. Um, well, first of all, I don't like how you are basically implying to everyone that I am an angry individual.
0: i said i'm the that like the social media thing is like that's like that's my thing where i'm just like (laughs) everybody's becoming an idiot because we're only reading 200 characters at a time
1: yeah just this week just this week only no i genuinely appreciate this question i think it's great um it's interesting because you brought up contradictory um information that's Something that's always going to exist in your life and not just in the fitness realm. So again, I think it's going back to having the skills or abilities to deal with contradictory opinions, quote unquote facts. Um,
0: Is there a course that might help you think through how to deal with contradictory opinions or facts?
1: I think so. It's actually, I think it's like on michellebowlin-training.com.
0: That's smart cookie, that Michelle Anyhow.
1: <laughs> oh I'm kidding. Um, but I was actually having um, a very lovely discussion with one of my um, one of my favorite clients this morning, but we we were talking about the academic system and how they just throw information at you, but they don't actually provide you. uh, One of those clients had to send her daughter to a place that taught her organizational skills, basically how to help with academics. And it's like, well, why isn't that the academic kind of role? This goes back to that. It's like. You have to have the skills to be able to organize information and take pieces of information from different systems and models and places that you've learned to be able to create something that is going to get results or, or fit into the context in which you are working with. Um, and that's a lot of, I think, skills that people are lacking, not to say that you know, i have all those skills but that's something that ne- needs to be created before again people are jumping around to all these huge systems um, and models and expecting it to be the final solution um uh, let's hit the second half of this question or oh,
0: do you look one at sec uh, no i just think about exactly with what you were just talking about but in the in the nutrition word, it's like you can world it's like you can totally see a, a twitterized version of facts that would go something like carbs are needed to fuel exercise or carbs will make you fat. And it's like, both of those things are true, but they completely lack nuance and a more detailed explanation of in what context each of those things would be true. Right? So it's like, we just have to be really, really careful. um, Evaluating things at a purely surface level and then labeling them contradictory, because that probably propagates unnecessary confusion on the part of the consumer.
1: Yes, and I think it goes back to people's ability to extract useful information. And again, you kind of went into flexion and extension being labeled or solely associated with a certain model or system, and I I think that kind of goes down maybe a a negative aspect of that. But in terms of extracting information to make it useful for yourself and in your context, I think it's a skill of extracting concepts, turning them into principles that you can now work with. And now that becomes your kind of framework um, that you exist around and creates um, your own structure and system around. There's a few, I would say, great books. I wasn't really highly impressed with them, but I will mention them. Um, one is called Thinking in Systems and Mental Models. That's right here. I, I don't know who wrote it. but I Want to
0: show note that bad boy?
1: Yeah. And then there's two books. There's two volumes called The Great Mental Models. The, volume one is General Thinking Concepts. In volume two is physics, chemistry, and biology. And, you know, I think you can get through these books pretty quick. I think, to be honest with you, they're books that could be 10 pages long. Um, but I think it gives you really good information on how you think. Can you extrapolate like information? Can you turn it into... Uh, processes or a way to think versus, you know, we talk about like specific methodologies and black and white kind of answers. Um, So that's just kind of my general tips. Maybe, maybe check out those books or my course.
0: (laughs) I like that quite a bit. And I think one of the best things that you could do as a human, um, not just as a professional is try to have more discussions with people that think differently than you. Oh Yeah,
1: that uh, that's clutch.
0: And, tr- and try to not only understand where they're coming from, but understand with what they think, how, how that action or that thought process might be useful in a certain context. So again, going back to the McKenzie or PRI example, it's, you could be a, you know, the most diehard PRI advocate, but trying to ask yourself, all right, like when would this McKenzie stuff actually be really useful? And that'll, for me, that's helped me break out of the mold of thinking that there is a way to do things.
1: That, that was a really good point of having conversations with people. And this is obviously easy for me, but I think some people need to keep this in mind of just removing emotion a little bit from it, um, especially on social media. I don't know why people get so aggressive on social media, but don't take things so personally with when different opinions um, and know that they're probably getting just as good, good results from doing something different. Um but the second part of this question is, do you look at movement only through PRI or the Bill Hartman model? And I would say no. Um, I think they've been highly influential. But I don't think people realize how much I am really biased towards my experiences and kind of upbringing in this field in the performance realm. um, heavily biased towards foundational strength and conditioning concepts and performance-based mindset. I think my movement lens, yes, again, it's been influenced by those two things and concepts and guidelines that I use within exercise selection. But what I really have is a process that I take through questions that I prompt to myself of, especially for program design, of – what are the skills that this person needs to be able to do to reach their specific goal what are the abilities within those skills that i can teach and improve upon and then what drills can i create that are going to teach that individual those abilities or acquire those abilities that will improve those skills that's kind of my general movement framework Um, maybe for assessments in terms of, you know, seeing a split squat in front of me and thinking, you know, why are they pushing their hips back? Yeah. I think a lot of that was taken through those two models. Um, but I don't think it it overruns, um, me or, um, my personal fitness kind of mind frame.
0: I like that. I like that quite a bit. I'll, I'll probably give this listener what they want with, with my answer here. Cause it's going to be, it's going to be the, like, I think your answer was the more important one. Um, this, the SFMA, the selective functional movement assessment, I, I do not use that system as I learned that system. Uh, I took, FMS in maybe 2011, 2012, I took SFMA one and probably 2013 and SFMA two in like 15 or 16. So it's been a while, I'm not, I don't speak for them or anything, but I think what I take from the, from the SFMA is an appreciation that as physical therapists specifically, what we need to be assessing is movement and not joint pathology or a single joint or a single tissue. And that's just a paradigm shift that I think should occur in universities all throughout the country. I think the model that we're taught in school with the 10 special tests for each type of pathology is outdated and not incredibly useful given our skill set and scope of our practice. We're not orthopedic surgeons. So it, does not really matter if we diagnose someone has a hip labral tear, like we treat movement impairments. So we should be really, really skilled at looking at movement. That's how I think SFMA has influenced my practice. I do like the, the top tier tests. I think they're a useful baseline for seeing, you know all the planes that someone can move in. Of course they're incomplete as every series of tests or assessment is going to be. Um, But that's my piece on the SFMA. I kind of think it should be the first quarter of the first year of physical therapy school. Hey, these are all the ways that the human being can move. This is what we'd like to see with movement. Um, When you establish there's a deficit, then we can go into, okay, cool. Why is there a deficit? How do we go about remediating that? All those things.
1: That's very clear cut. Um, I think in kind of my world, how I think about things is kind of, three different big categories. One would be movement quality. The second would be fitness. And the third would be performance. And a lot of the PRI Bill Hartman model has really helped me with the movement kind of quality with that. And then my ability to translate that into the other two below um, have something to do with how they've influenced me. But again, going back to my previous experiences and kind of upbringing in this field is really heavy and heavy and biased towards, you know, the fitness and performance aspects. Movement quality, I would say, that more relates to access to joint ranges of motion and movement patterns. Um, in And and those types of things. And that's where, you know, if I have a client who's very heavily towards that, I will collaborate with someone who I think is better at those skills than I. Um, For instance, I sent you a a client a couple weeks ago. And then fitness is looking at exercise in terms of physiological and mechanical changes to specific tissues or overall systems. And then performance And that's really, excuse me, and fitness is really the development of those things. And performance is the expression of those. So it's my ability to express fitness in a task-oriented environment, such as sport. Um, So those are kind of how I think of those things and, and how kind of different systems and models have influenced each one of those kind of categories.
0: I think we beat that one up pretty good. Lightning round? Yes. Okay, we're gonna attempt to answer each of the following questions in 60 seconds or less. Dr. Bullen, you ready? Yes. Declan asks, what's the bench press at?
1: <laughs> Great question. Um, you know, I haven't, I'm just gonna say dumbbell bench press because I haven't barbell ben pr- bench press in a significant amount of time. Um, I would say I can do. I wouldn't say this. Like, I think it was not too long ago I did 60s for three reps, and I think I did 65 for one.
0: That's pretty good bench and body weight
1: at like 115, 120 body weight. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. hell yeah. Okay. Ryan asks if you could only do two exercises for a whole year, what would they be?
1: I would just say clear cut, trap bar deadlift, and dumbbell bench press. Boom.
0: Yeah. Um, If you're keeping me in a gym, I go split squat pull-up. If I can access the world, I go sprint in a grass field and climb.
1: Are you not going to answer the bench press one? We will be back after this quick message. The biggest struggle trainers have with building and scaling their online training programs, attracting remote fitness clients, and maintaining communication is having quality videos that provide exercise technique and coaching instruction. So stop searching the internet. You will never find them unless you go to michellebond trainingcom Imagine all of those funny looks your programs get when clients are trying to figure out what an exercise is instead of having clear instruction. Gain access to over 900 exercise videos and hundreds of positional variations that you see on my Instagram to send to your remote clients with the new MBT Exercise Database 3.0. You will not find a contralateral reach walking lunge a front foot elevated ipsilateral cable row, a Komodo crawl designed for posterior expansion, or a frontal plane hip shifting med ball slam on YouTube or anywhere else for that matter. The new database drops June 2021. Be the first to be notified about a pre-sale by signing up for the wait list using a link in my Instagram profile. And now back to the show.
0: I pre I'm fairly I'm fairly confident I could replicate what Michelle can do, but not much more.
1: a body at a
0: at a body weight of 165.
1: That's why you didn't answer, you sneaky <laughs> he, son of a gun.
0: This, this listen, this Declan guy did not ask me. He asked you. <laughs> okay. Speaking of Declan, how does someone mentor interns as a young coach? Declan asks.
1: I love this one. So I wrote down a few things. One of my biggest things is I've kind of already mentioned this, so I won't beat it down, but um, teach skills um, in organization abilities with, with kids more so than associating specific exercises or methods with something that they should be doing. So for example, when you're teaching someone to program design, you know, back in the day, I would literally was kind of told, where is your hang clean, back squat and bench press going to be within your training session? Well, it's like, okay, T- in terms of organizational skills, teach kids how to create a programming <laughs> template Did you just hear my uh, dog bark? That was not Benson. (laughs) No, that was not Benson. Um, Teach kids how to create a programming template so they can stay organized and structured with the more things that they learned. Keep an open mind to things that may, going back to the last question, contradict what they already know Um, and provide maybe steps or processes in order to accomplish things. So give them kind of, Prompting questions when they go down to program design. You know, what, what are you trying to accomplish? What's the outcome that you're trying to accomplish with this program? Um, break that down a little bit. Choose exercises that are going to lead you down that pathway. How are you going to create like a feedback process just so they can go through that um, more so than? telling them where specific exercises should be in their program design.
0: Yeah, I I like that. We went way beyond the 60 seconds there. I would say from a physical therapy standpoint, the role of a mentor with a young practitioner is providing real-world experience and just kind of like realness to that which they have learned in the classroom or through Con Ed courses. So like actually, you know, trying to give them experiences to form their own opinions on what they would do how this actually looks in the real world versus this is the progression as laid out by, oh my God, Michelle just grabbed her dog. <laughs> this is just dog. Time. I got both of the dogs asleep next to me on the bed, maximum oh. adorableness, but you don't see me bragging about it. Okay. I think moving on to the final question, which might've been submitted as a joke, but I kind of like it in some ways. Uh, this is submitted by Tay, Taylor Upton, owner of Colorado Fitness and Strength, where my clinic is located. How much fitness is too much fitness? Michelle, you wanna take a stab?
1: There is no such thing.
0: Ooh, I'm gonna say that, so this is to steal an idea from the one, the only Bill Hartman. You want enough fitness to complete the task, but not so much that it robs you of something else that you need and or need more. The example I always think about is that of the 100 meter sprinter. Like they don't need to rotate very much. So they can kind of extend and get really, really strong in certain muscles. But then if you take that athlete and you made them a soccer athlete, they're going to need to cut and like eccentrically manage force. So a lot of the fitness that you would garner to become a successful 100 meter sprinter would be maladaptive to being a field athlete and that you wouldn't be able to do a lot of the things that you need to do. So Fitness is not one of those things where more is always better and fitness. We've talked about this in previous podcasts consists of like five, 10, 15 disparate things. So we want to be really, really careful. And we want training that pushes the limits of certain elements of fitness without robbing us of other elements of fitness that we might need.
1: That was a fantastic, long winded answer. That I do agree with you on, but of course, hopefully people know my sarcasm by now, but um, yeah.
0: Any other rapid fire questions, Dr. Michelle Bolin?
1: No, I think I have a bunch of questions for you about the podcast, but I think we'll hit those up next time.
0: All right. Well, until next time, dear listener, thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us, and the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high-caliber guests and continuing to produce a high-quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool, and that likely means your friends are pretty cool, too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.